Let's open our Bibles now to the final passage in 2 Thessalonians. Um, Notice the uh, bulletin say verses 16 through 18, but it's 6 through 18, and so we'll start reading at 2 Thessalonians chapter 6. And uh, Oh, actually, I take that back. That's what the bulletin says, and that's what my notes here say, but the first line of my manuscript says we're going to read verses 1 through 5 as well. So... um, (laughs) So look at verse 1, and we'll really focus on 6 through 18, but there are typos all over the place, I guess. And so, um, so we'll, we'll start reading at the, the beginning of that chapter. And the reason that we'll read verse 1 as kind of a bridge into the passage today is, is really compelled to do so by a commentary that I was reading that says, the sections ought not be separated, because what the Apostle Paul is going to do in verses 1 through 5 is give the positive vision of um, being an industrious, steadfast worker for the Lord, and then in the verses we read of 6 through 18, give some warnings concerning that. And so he kind of gives the positive on the front end, and then some correction on uh, that, uh, that other side of the passage. And so it's good for us to hear both, um, both perspectives and both things that are happening. And so to refresh your memory of where we are, where we have been in Second Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica... Um, was concerned about what will happen at the return of Christ. There was a lot of confusion. Um, many people thought that, that they've missed the return of Jesus. Um, there was a false prophet, um, at least one, perhaps others as well, that came and told them that they missed it, that Christ has returned, that the kingdom of God is somewhere else in the world besides Thessalonica. And so these people are concerned about this matter. And Paul is writing to correct them and to give them good theology to set their minds at ease. That's what good theology will always do for a Christian, is to to point you in the right direction, to point you towards the comfort and assurance of the gospel, that Christ is yet to return, and when he does, we will all know about it. We will all see. Um, That was the end of 1 Thessalonians, where the return of Christ would be a massively public event. You might recall that with the, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, Christ will descend and us, we as saints, as the church, would welcome him. And this will be not a secret event by any stretch, but a public event. And so Paul is writing to them to encourage them, you're not going to miss it. Certainly you haven't and you're not going to either. And so Paul is also teaching that leading up to the sec- second coming of Jesus, there would be trials and tribulations for believers, including these Christians in Thessalonica. And so a message like that could perhaps discourage a congregation. But actually, Paul is writing to encourage them to be prepared for the difficult trial that will come for them and will come for all of us as believers. And so we'll see in our text today that Paul wants to motivate the church to work hard for Jesus as we await for his return. That's really the overall theme of First and Second Thessalonians. And um, having already prayed, let's maybe review a little bit of last week by reading 1 through 5, but focus especially on the later part of the passage. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. 
May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What motivates you to work hard? If you are not a hard worker, what is lacking in your motivation? If you ever turned on Comedy Central in the early 2000s, which is sort of when I was in college and would have done so often, it was likely that you would have stumbled across a movie called Office Space about some young men who work together for a tech company. I see some people smiling because it's a pretty silly movie. And my exposure to the movie came through watching the edited version on TV, and so I won't recommend that you watch the rated R version that would be on a streaming service or a video that you could rent today. But at one point in this movie, the main character of Office Space is asked about his lack of productivity. That's really what the movie is all about, these three guys who do not want to work hard and are trying to get out of it in various ways. And so this main character is asked why he isn't getting more done at work in the office where he works at, in a tech. To which he responds with a sort of a prophetic little line. He says, it's not that I'm lazy, it's that I just don't care. <laughs> it's not that I'm lazy, it's that I just don't care. And so actually he's saying, I am lazy, but that's not at the root of the problem for me. It's that he really doesn't care about the product that this company is producing or about the customers that they're supposed to be serving, about making his bosses happy. He just gives up caring and therefore is a bad employee. So at the root of idleness, of laziness, and of what the historic church has called sloth is a lack of desire. It's actually, like I said, kind of an insightful little thing in that humorous line from that movie. That at the root of of laziness is not caring. Not caring about the kingdom of God or other people or doing a good job for its own sake. P. 
people who check out of society, people who depart from their own families, people who maybe don't do anything in the church, they have lost a vision for what matters. They have given up on caring for whatever God has set before them to tend to, as we thought about this morning, to cultivate. They don't care about it. And so that care, that lack of care, is seen in idleness, laziness. This would include people who collect a paycheck, like the characters of office space. This doesn't mean that every person who is lazy is somebody who immediately gets fired, but there are all kinds of people collecting paychecks who are still idle, who are still lazy, who don't care. And in the same way, there are people who sit in the pews of churches and who still really don't care about the kingdom of God and about really working hard so that the name of Christ would be exalted through their lives. So many people could do just enough to keep their jobs. So many people in church could do just enough to kind of pass the visual test and seem like you're a part of the visible church while not really working or caring about what happens. So, in our text, the Apostle Paul addresses different forms of idleness that we will be tempted towards at various points in our journey of following Christ. We will be tempted towards idleness, towards sloth, towards not caring about the kingdom of God. One temptation is becoming weary. And that's in verse 13. The Apostle Paul warns about this. And it's maybe less of a warning, we could say, than, than just recognizing that, that this is going to happen at times in our spiritual lives. As for you, brothers, he says, do not grow weary in doing good. It's going to be a temptation, but do not grow weary in doing good. So if you lack motivation or passion for ministry, the reason could be that you haven't experienced much visible success in your work in the church or in your family and you've become weary and so you're wondering is the hard work that you commit to the Lord really worth it at all that's maybe a description of the weary person one area where this could happen is in children's ministry so many of the children of our own congregation have grown up in church and have moved away and because we don't see them anymore, we could become weary. We could become discouraged about putting effort into gems and cadets and Sunday school and youth group. And some would be tempted to give up. Or another example of this, a married couple might be in a rough patch where you aren't connecting well with each other and you're not seeing a lot of visible success, you might say, for the effort you put into your marriage and weariness could set in that is quickly transformed into laziness in our relationships. This is when we need the steadfastness of Christ that the Apostle Paul blessed the church in Thessalonica with in verse 5. And the Apostle Paul wrote often about the temptation of weariness. He wrote this to the churches in Galatia, a wonderful passage that um, really flows quite well alongside uh, verse 13 there, where he wrote, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. 
Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So this passage to the Galatian churches and verse 16 of 2 Thessalonians 3 is true of all types of ministry and of all callings that God places on us. It's true of children's ministry. There will be a harvest if we do not give up. It's true of marriage. There will be a harvest if you do not give up. It's true of serving on praise team. It's true of preaching, of accounting and teaching and farming and woodworking and building and parenting. There will be a harvest if we do not give up. So, brothers and sisters, if you are weary, recapture a vision of Christ, of serving Christ, and of even this promise also that that God will not be mocked when you sow to please the Spirit in church, in your marriage, in any sphere of life, when you sow to please the Spirit in those places, there will be a harvest of life for you and hopefully also for those that you're serving. The kingdom of God in the name of Jesus is worthy of your hard work. It is worthy of perseverance, steadfastness, focus, and effort. Another temptation towards idleness that the Apostle Paul addresses in this passage is becoming a busybody. Some people seem industrious, but they're not really accomplishing anything. He says this in verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And the Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses for busy bodies is used one time in the whole New Testament, and this is it. And it's... In a lot of ways, it's, it's busy bodies is a pretty good literal translation for the Greek word because this Greek word is a compound word that literally could be translated as being around working. <laughs> I like that wooden, that wooden translation. These are people who are around working happening but are really not contributing anything. Somebody who is a busy body is somebody who might show up but who doesn't really contribute, um, who doesn't get their hands dirty, who doesn't um, offer um, to, to really dig in to what is happening in a workplace or a church or a family. One dictionary that I consulted described this type of person as everywhere doing everything but doing nothing. Everywhere doing everything but doing really nothing in the end. And so what does this look like today? And in our culture, what are some particular temptations towards becoming a busybody? I think social media is a huge arena of busybodiness instead of real productivity. Um, do you just talk about getting things done, or do you show up, do you volunteer, do you contribute your money and your time, and do you serve? Just as I said, social media at times can be a place where there's this term, virtue can be signaled without actually ever meeting someone who disagrees with you and talking with somebody or serving the Lord by volunteering somewhere. It can be easy to consume material about any sort of political issue and do nothing about it. In the kingdom of God, those who are most blessed are those who are truly 
active. And this could challenge how we think of politics and particularly on social justice matters. For example, I'm a member of an online forum with an assortment of acquaintances. I only really know a couple people. Um, The person who created this forum on Facebook was one of my students when I was a youth leader in Grand Rapids during seminary, and he invited me to become a part of a Facebook discussion group. And I would say the majority of the people in this Facebook discussion group are not Christians. And so um, it's interesting to see the interactions that happen there as people are, it's a closed group, are really offering their honest opinions about various matters. And at one point, the members of the group were engaged in a long and passionate discussion about prison reform, of what happens in prisons and how terrible it is and how the food needs to be better and how is it actually cruel and unusual punishment to be offering this kind of unhealthy food to people who live in prison, to which I simply asked, have any of you actually been to a prison before? Have any of you actually been there to talk with some of these people who live in prison, who are incarcerated, to which I don't think a single person ever had been. (laughs) And so the point is not so much to, to pat myself on the back, but to say that social media engagement could have its place, but it can also become a form of laziness, a form of this busybodiness that the Apostle Paul is warning against that actually is distracting people away from the real work of meeting people, ministering to people, and helping people in practical ways. That, that was basically my challenge to the group. Go to a prison, please. Just build a relationship with somebody who is incarcerated right now, to which I was pretty quickly rebuffed. We don't have time to do things like that, um, some of the people in the forum said. But maybe if we want to land that a little bit closer to home, If abortion is a matter of great importance to you, don't just talk about it. Don't just vote for a pro-life candidate every four four years. Do something. Do something. Volunteer with Modesto Pregnancy Center. They always need help. Foster a child. Do something instead of just talking or having a political opinion. I think that this warning against busybodiness is, is very pointed towards our culture, which loves to look busy, look opinionated, to look like we have all the information without actually serving Christ, building relationships, giving our money, doing the hard work of serving him. So, there's the warning against busybodiness. Verses 7 through 8 address another type of laziness, but There Paul gives a positive picture of of his own ministry. He said, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And so the Apostle Paul is reminding them of this because the opposite is happening in the Thessalonian church. He's writing about earning your keep because some in the Thessalonian church are not doing so. Um, We can safely assume that when the Apostle Paul says, if somebody is not working, um, he shouldn't eat, well, Paul is giving that warning because it's something that's happening in their community that we would call this mooching is happening in the Thessalonian church. It's something maybe people don't say all that much anymore, but there are moochers in the church who just kind of 
show up to, to ride on the, the coattails, you might say, of the people who really are doing the work. The moocher just sort of is in the community and receiving the blessings and benefits of the community without diligently working to serve the Lord. And so Paul says, that's not how I act, acted among you. And, and he even says, I, I didn't even um, receive from you. I could have, but, but he didn't, just to show that it's about giving, as he says and towards the end of the book of Acts, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So unfortunately, these moochers are missing out on the value of a good day's work. They're the ones missing out on feeling good about contributing to the church, about earning an honest wage. And um, they're the ones missing out on the joy of participating in ministry alongside other people. The Christian lives to lift the burdens of other people, not to add to their burdens. And again, this, this is a matter of great importance in our culture as well. The Christian should be lifting burdens, should be working to bless other people and, and not to add to the burdens of others by expecting, demanding, and consuming. So Paul gives the warning about that kind of lifestyle and says it, it'll ultimately lead towards misery in the end. But continuing we have uh, the positive command. We command you now, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even that you keep away from every brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So this is how serious it is. Paul is saying here that laziness is contagious. Don't we all know that that's true? <laughs> in a, a family or in a workplace, um, on a serve trip, you, you can think of... Um, my own experience bringing youth groups onto surf trips and there, there was one that went extremely well and hard work was contagious and we got a lot done um, in northwestern New Mexico helping Navajo farmers and, and so forth. It was a wonderful ministry and then the next year the laziness of the group was kind of contagious and we really didn't get all that much done at all. And so this laziness could be seen in a family or a workplace, even in a church. And as we consider the matter of laziness, we might be tempted to think that it's less important than some of the big sins that you need to watch out for, stealing and lying and hating our neighbor or committing adultery. But this is a serious matter in the kingdom of God. And it's serious not just for us individually, but Paul says here it's serious because it's contagious throughout a whole church where you have people who said, no, nah, I'm, I'm just done, become weary, of serving in this way. I've tried before and it hasn't worked and, and so just going to withdraw from church ministry for a little while. That becomes very contagious throughout a church. And so we need to be careful of this. It can ruin the productivity, the fruitfulness of a church. So think of this, maybe I'll share a little parable as we start to close. Imagine a teacher in a class gives the class some, some time to complete a math worksheet. I would guess it happens almost every day in an elementary school classroom that the teacher has given students time specifically for this task of doing their math homework. And it's a, a doable assignment. They could sit and complete it quite quickly if they just focus for a little while. Now imagine that all the students in the classroom work diligently except for two students. 
One of those students is walking around and very obviously disobeying the teacher. The other student who's not working is just sitting quietly and daydreaming. So which student is rebelling against the teacher's instruction? Both of the students are disobeying the teacher. One very actively disobeying by maybe distracting some other people. The other more passively disobeying, but but even their passivity is a kind of active disobedience against the clear instructions of the teacher. So whenever the Apostle Paul refers to someone being idle, it might be helpful to us to know the Greek word that he uses communicates a very active, rebellious form of laziness. And so um, even as he's talking about idleness, he's, he's really referring almost more to that person who is walking around and distracting everyone else from doing their work as well. Uh, As he wrote at one point, uh, some of you are walking around in idleness. They're influencing other people away from Christ and away from their work, and um, this is causing many in Thessalonica to lose focus. So instead of merely being distracted, um, the other people who are around these idle, lazy people are, you know, um, are pulled away from what God has designed them to do. We could think of a student who's given an instruction from a teacher and, and sort of sits there with their arms crossed. Isn't that kind of a, an active form of rebellion and idleness? That's what Paul is warning against, particularly when he uses the, the verb or the description of idleness in this passage, which he does many times, actually. Such people destroy the momentum of a church. Such people are contagious in their standing with their arms crossed when something doesn't go like they think it should or when they just don't want to work or contribute. Maybe on the positive side, um, again referring back to my time as a youth leader, I remember one young man in my youth group was an outstanding young man who would arrive early to youth group and he would always say, how can I help? Put me to work. And it was really this student who sort of made that trip to New Mexico a really great time because he was a leader and his industriousness was infectious to the people around him. He's actually in ministry in the Christian Reformed Church today. It's been a few years since I was a youth minister and so he's actually a missionary in Lithuania now. And so having that attitude of that student, how can I help? Put me to work is really what the Apostle Paul is encouraging. Finally, just in closing, what will motivate the Christian to live in that way, to get to work for Christ? We can return again to verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. To consider Christ, to love Christ, will prompt you to be active in serving God. There was no job too dirty for Jesus to do. There was no job too menial or meaningless for Jesus to do. There was no job too humiliating for Christ to accomplish. After all, consider his own death would have been the height of humiliation. Naked on a cross in public. Brothers and sisters, if we fall into the trap of thinking Christianity is only about our beliefs, we will lose sight 
of the many examples in Scripture where Jesus loved people and calls us to love people like he did. And it's hard work. It's hard work. It will take dedication, devotion, a constant fixing our eyes upon Jesus so that we could serve him well. That we would even know what the ministry of Jesus would look like in our relationships or in a workplace or school. And so this, is, this should be our prayer, that we would know Christ, that we would know the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ so that we would be equipped and inspired, motivated to work for Christ. If you are blessed by the love of God and blessed with the steadfastness of Christ, you'll not only do that work, but you will find joy in the work as well. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.